You're listening to Loving the Snow Life with Emma and Tennille. Tennille, our mum, and Emma, her awesome friend, share deep passion for the snow. They started a podcast together to share all their experiences with you. Between them, they have skied over 95 resorts, both held ski instructor qualifications, lived and worked in resorts, and still spent every hard-earned dollar skiing. They set their lives up around snow travel, and our ski bags are always packed, ready to go. We're certainly not complaining about this, are we? No way. And even better, we get to share all the experiences. Hi, Rachel. How's it going? Hi, Emma. Much better now. I have a coffee. Thank you. (laughs) Welcome. Um, So most of us know you as Miss Know-It-All. What a fantastic name. Tell us the story behind that. How did I get that name? I used to have a column with Fairfax in the Sydney Morning Herald in the Age, and you know, I just came, I'm, I'm a classic person for puns, love a, love a good word pun. And so I went to them and said, we I actually approached both News Limited and Fairfax and said, I think you need to have a ski column within your travel section and we should call it Snow It All and I could be Miss Snow It All and offered it to both of them, showed them that because at that time, we're talking 15 years ago, maybe a little bit longer, at that time, there wasn't a lot of ski and snow action happening within the travel pages, and yet Australia is the number one international inbound market to Aspen, to Colorado, to Utah, to British Columbia, to Japan, to New Zealand. And so there was a whole lot of money being held to market to Australians, and the newspapers weren't getting a slice of that. So, of course, I went to them and said, do you want a slice of that pie? Here's the stats, here's the numbers, employ me and I'll do the column and ski around the world. And it's worked out perfectly. And it's worked out perfectly. That's awesome. That is awesome. Uh, yeah, so your background is in media. Tell us a bit about your background. Well, I started, well, I went to university twice and dropped out twice. And all I wanted to do when I was a kid was be an actress. I just wanted to get into thespian school. I just wanted to go and study full time for three, four years. And finally, I got into thespian school and freaked out. I was highly bulimic at the time. I had a terrible number of eating disorders as a teenager and in my 20s. And I remember going in to see my parents. They were asleep in bed and they said, oh, you've got the, got the letter, you've opened it. You've got in, that's fantastic. And I've gone, you know that round-the-world ticket you were offered each of us as kids? I think I'm going to take it hmm. now. And they're like, but you just got into the school you want. I said, no, no, I'm going to go audition for a school in London instead. And, of course, I didn't. I flew to London and worked in hospitality like every good Australian for three and a half years. Yes. Almost married, almost married a baron, would have been Lady Rachel right now if I had. Oh, <laughs> he he loved his booze as much as I loved my binging and purging so it wasn't a really great common denominator for a relationship so when I came home I managed to talk my way into a job with Sony Music as national publicist having never done publicity before in my life and I ended up looking after all the bands all the rock and roll international artists and getting them press and drugs and women and whatever else you had to get. <laughs> <laughs> I at this, I was at a law school. I was, uh, yeah, I was at a, at a, I've got some very funny stories from that time. <laughs> so, <laughs> legal stories, I'm sure. But I, I was at an album launch and there was a radio announcer there from Brisbane who just left her job at B105 and was going to Triple M. And she said to me, you should work in radio. And I went, 
sure, why not? So she got her boss to ring me and they threw me on air for three hours and then he rang me and said, do you want a gig? So I ended up at B105 doing the Hot 30 Countdown as Queen of the Teens for nine months and then Today FM in Sydney called me and I went back home to Sydney and I was on Today FM for a couple of years and then Foxtel launched and I was one of the original Foxtel presenters and then Do I got a couple Doing um, Fox Fashion and entertainment news, and oh, I've forgotten I did Fox Fashion. That's hilarious. <laughs> considering I'm wearing wearing a Holly Hobby gingham shirt as we speak. It's on trend. I believe it's on trend, but it's very not me. I was. What did I do? Yeah, I did. I did Fox Fashion. We did something called interstitials. So when Foxtel first launched, they had no advertising. It was just ad free cable television. It was you know first for Australia. So mm-hmm. most TV shows are, are filmed and edited into 23 minutes or 46 minutes and because of the ad, ad slots. So they did these things called interstitials. And I did something called FX on the road, and I would go out on the street with a microphone and box pop people about, you know, interesting social aspects or yeah. funny or whatever. And then they'd put those interstitials between in the spaces where ads were. Yep. So then I did Fox Fashion and then I did Fox Entertainment News. I was always the colour piece. and I don't know why. Yeah, I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Must be my shirt. And, then, and yeah, and then I was doing radio at the same time. And then I ended up writing a couple of books with Random House. And then I was writing for newspapers and magazines at the same time. And then I went on a famil, which is a familiarization in the tourism industry, yes. where they invite you as a journalist to go on a travel trip. And this one happened to be skiing. And I got the bug. So, awesome. yeah, that's that's quite. Quite a life that everyone, I'm, I'm sure all my teenage girls out there, I've got two teenage daughters, they'd be like, how do I get that life, mum? <laughs> and there's probably a lot of people out there going, that is incredible. Good times, good stories. I'm sure it was wild. <laughs> and then you found that, is that why you found the mountains quite, you know, you may be attached to them because you live this wild city life and TV and no, okay. No, no. It's took me quite a while to fall in love with mountains because I've always been a beach person. And then I would often describe myself as a city chick pretending to be a beach chick, pretending to be a mountain chick, pretending <laughs> to be a remote, actually just pretending. So I was <laughs> winning. <laughs> I um actually became a ski journalist through humiliation because I was in Queenstown. I'd had two days of private ski instruction with a guy at the Remarkables who told me how great I was because, I mean, you're a ski instructor, you know, how you've got to build the confidence up. Yes. But I believed him, right? So I thought after two days of skiing I was like Michaela Shiffrin, move on over. <laughs> and, and so I met this guy who was the CEO of Destination Queenstown and he said, oh, you a skier? I said, yeah, I'm a skier. <laughs> and he goes, would you like to come skiing with the Prime Minister of New Zealand tomorrow? I said, oh, can she ski? <laughs> he's like, yeah, 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 she can ski. I said, all right, okay, sure. Where, what are we doing? So we're going to open the, I think it was the White Star Express or the Magic, whatever it is over in Caldrona. We're going to open a, a chairlift and she'll be there and she can ski with you. I went, okay. So off I go. Turns out they have international press there. When I oh. ask who the international press is, it's me. I'm, oh. the <laughs> I'm like, okay, all right. And all I had to do, all I had to do was ski down a cat track to get down to the chairlift, 
to get on the chair with the Prime Minister and ski down with her for a photo opportunity. I couldn't get down the cat track. <laughs> to me, it was like a spine in Alaska. But really, now I can actually skate properly. It was it was pretty horizontal. And <laughs> I couldn't do it. <laughs> By the time I got to the chair, she'd already got on the chair, skied down, got in a helicopter and gone. Oh, there goes your story. And now I've got Destination, the CEO of Destination Quest, and you can just imagine these Kiwis on the chair with me, missing <laughs> themselves laughing, just going, yeah, you can ski, can't you, Rach? Right? So I'm on the chair with them and I look around the whole of Cardona and I go, you see every single run here, including those ones over there that you can't access? I'm going to ski. I'm coming back this season. I'm going to ski every single one of them. And we got off at the top and I went left down the green run and they went right over the blue and blacks. <laughs> and, and humiliation got me 250 hours of private ski instruction so that within two years I was badly heli-skiing, but I could do it. But you could do it. But I could do it. Yeah. I always think skiing is one of those things where you cannot lie about it ever because it, like, it's something so provable in the next minute. It's not like, (laughs) you know, you can say I'm good at whatever that never be discovered. It's literally put your money where your mouth is and (laughs) you just don't get away with it, do you? But also there are different, like, different days. You're a better skier on some days than other days. Yeah. And, And depending on your flow state and inside your head. But, yeah, absolutely, you can certainly, if you over-talk yourself, people will be able to tell pretty quickly. I also think you learn a lot about how you approach life by the way you learn to ski and yeah. about how you approach a mountain, yes. how you approach that fall line, how yeah. you approach failure, yeah. how you approach injury, how you approach coming back from injury, mm-hmm. all yeah. of that stuff. Yeah, Definitely. Absolutely. I've just, I'm eight weeks post-op my ACL um, so and I'm like okay I know I'm focusing now I'm looking at ski videos and I'm like those moguls are like oh my gosh they're kind of you know they're playing with me now whereas like mm-hmm. eight weeks ago they wouldn't have even played with me I would have just dived right into them but now I'm like okay I can do this so it's all it is mind games and it is fitness in your brain there's a really good psych or there used to be a really good psych the New South Wales Institute of Sport I broke my I fractured my tibia plateau ruptured my MCL and tore my meniscus in a ski accident on the Superstars camp in Portillo. And when I came back, I went and saw a surgeon. Did the, I didn't have surgery, thank God, but okay. I did I did really, really intense rehab. But the one thing that you're talking about there was what really got me was how am I going to do this again? How am I going to ski again when I've done such a number on myself, mm-hmm. off-paced, in extreme conditions, and now I'm petrified. Yeah. So I went and saw this guy, Peter Penner, I think his name was. I can't remember. Yeah. He was really good. And I just had one session with him and he taught me these techniques about, I think he said something like, when you're standing on a run that you normally would have done without blinking before and now you're looking at it and you're going, oh, my God, i got to do it, you need to be skiing with someone else who distracts you and starts talking to you about something else. Yeah. Then you need to just take two beats and jump into it. I th- and think of every turn and then he goes if you if the moment you stop thinking about a turn you have to stop I'm like, oh, great I yeah. think that's the beauty of a really great ski instructor I think the art maybe of a ski instructing is getting lost a little bit but I think it's coming back I, because you know it, it's not a high paying job but it is a seasonal job but I think the beauty of a good ski instructor will get you thinking like that they they talk more about your mindset and distract you like 
when I was when I was teaching skiing, sorry, I'm not saying I'm a good one, but I never let people step <laughs> at the top of the run. <laughs> I was yeah. like, let's just do two turns after the top of the run, you know, and then they'd be like, oh my God, we're already on the run. Okay. And I'm like, yeah, you are. Let's go. Let's keep going. Exactly. So it's, yeah. So a lot of things like that. So your 250 hours of ski instruction, did you have some good and some bad in that? <laughs> well, I think what you're talking about there is as, as you being a ski instructor, you would know more than anyone, that everybody learns differently. So if you draw diagrams on the snow to me, I'm literally, uh, you've lost me, I'm gone. I'm, 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 it's like algebra to me. If yeah. you tell me, okay, lift your hip as if you're getting up onto a bar stool as you turn, I'll be like, oh, yeah, i got that. Move your big toe as if you're stumping out a cigarette. Oh, yeah, i got that. Mm-hmm. And it's because it, for me it's the feeling and the visual. Yeah. So if I can see you do it, I can replicate it. If I can have the feeling the imagery of the feeling, then I can I can do that. But if you're talking to me about what I'm supposed to be doing at the turn, I'm like, no, nah, I've got no idea. But I have had some really amazing ski instructors and some really bad ones. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, and you do know. You do know the difference. And you're like, wow, that's a lot of money I've well, just paid. Eventually you do. Mm-hmm. I don't think you do to start. It's like when I talk, somebody was talking in one of my Facebook groups the other day about, I think somebody had put up something about Costco, about the Costco sale. Oh, yeah. And all these people were jumping in going, you shouldn't be promoting Costco and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, I'm actually not promoting Costco. It's somebody's put that in my group and they haven't broken a rule. It's fine. But they were all arguing that we should be supporting only local brands and we should only be supporting ski specialists. And I was like, absolutely, of course, since COVID in particular more than anything. But when I learned to ski, when I first learned to ski, I didn't know what a ski specialist was. I didn't know the difference between atomic and head and rosignol. I didn't know what a powder skirt was. I just knew that I didn't know if I was going to love this sport. So I just want some cheap stuff. I want to borrow clothes from friends. I'll buy something on sale. I used to ski with my jacket open. I was a jerry. I had no idea. Oh, my gosh. I, you know, I, have, I have goggles over my long, freeze, flowing hair without a helmet because I thought it looked good. I was an idiot. not really just for loving it and then you found out there were better ways to do it (laughs) i learned that actually really good technical gear can change your comfort level and Mm. can change the way you ski then i was much more interested in going to ski specialists and much more interested in particular brands but without that entry level yes yeah well that's what Tanil and i find that just about our podcast that Yep. You know, around Sydney, we get the mum saying, where do I buy this and that and where do you get the gear for this and that? And it's, or should I buy a thermal, like simple, simple Yeah, things. simple so, stuff like yeah. getting people like that level entry, like where do I start to look for this or that or whatever? So, yeah, for sure, there's sort of levels. Automatically. It's not like osmosis. It's not like you stand on the snow and automatically understand and know everything you're supposed to have Mm, I think there is a place for I do think there is a place for Aldi and Costco and Decathlon I think there's yeah absolutely yeah yeah it brings more like it's a sport that is you know it's a hard sport to grow because it's an expensive sport and it's a privileged sport and no matter how many people fight me on that it is still an expensive sport it is still a privileged sport and you know, breaking down those barriers is the way that we are able to actually grow that sport and have more people involved with it and more people interested in it. And if breaking down the cost barrier is part of that, then so be it. Yeah, yeah, it is true. It's it's really difficult though in the industry, isn't it? Because they've really got like eight weeks to make their money. So that's why I think in Australia it is so expensive as opposed to when you go over and you ship yourself overseas, you can actually get three weeks for quite a lot less money. 
So the Australian industry, you know, if they can let people just enjoy, make it a little bit cheaper at entry point, you know, and then they'll they'll definitely grow their industry. I mean, we've been battling that for years because $180 a day to ski, holy, you know, that's huge. Nobody pays that unless you're entry level. That's the problem. Because entry right. level don't, yeah. understand, don't know that's about right. yes, the Epic Pass, the Icon Pass, the Mountain Collective Pass. The, that's it. So yeah. I just keep listing them? I don't, yeah, know. Yeah. I don't know about those. I think that's where Miss Nodal comes in a lot and your Facebook page is a lot of people, I when I read on that page a lot, there is a lot of, the questions are entry level, but they get smashed by a lot of the people that come in and go, rah, 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 rah. But that's a know-it-all, isn't it? So what happens in our groups, so yeah. we have six Facebook groups or seven Facebook groups, I, I can't remember. We've got the Facebook page, Miss Know-It-All, and then we have groups for Australia, New Zealand, Japan, Europe, USA, Canada, and all women. And the women group I love the most, obviously, because it's very inclusive. You know, it's kind, it's generous, it's funny. I do find the Australian group and the Japan group quite hilarious because particularly for skiers in Japan, it's all about, well, I know more than you do or yeah. I've been there more times than you have. <laughs> I went there I, in 2004. No, no, no. I, skied there <laughs> I skied Japan before Jesus was born. So, yeah. you know, it's, and you just like, really? I remember being at Lotte Arai and it had just opened that particular season and I was there with a friend of mine and we'd gone for a couple of nights and we were sitting in this completely empty restaurant. I mean, it's this massive hotel that's been built at the bottom of the most amazing lift access backcountry-style skiing. And all we can hear is this bunch of Australian blokes over in the corner talking about Niseko in 1973. <laughs> We're just <laughs> laughing. <laughs> it's so funny. It's like, can we just go have some fun? Let's just go skiing. Yeah, yeah. It's know, got that's the part of the sport as well, though, isn't it? Because there are so you do collect memories. You collect incredible memories. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, nobody likes Byron Bay now if they were in Byron in the 90s or the 80s. Yeah. So it's kind of the same. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's very, it is very similar. Yeah. Well, Emma Emma speaks fluent Japanese, so she's very oh, wow. good to go away on a just trip with you. Like, we've been awesome. Yeah. Can you say something to me in Japanese? Uh, nanika, something. Because oh. <laughs> <laughs> you just people only. I mean, yeah, that that must be a huge skill for you when you go skiing there. Yeah, I should have worked in the ski industry when I was sixteen or eighteen or whatever I did, and I when I went over there recently the last few years I'd look at these westerners and I'd think god wouldn't it be fun to work there now or yeah back in the day but (laughs) when you're when you're a westerner and you it was kind of like how can I exist in Japan how can I live here how can I Uh so we all sort of it's a bit like the classic of going to London and working the hospitality industry it's teaching English and things like that but I think these days you can be a westerner and go really well working the ski industry in Japan. We did a story recently of a young woman who was living in Japan last season. Her partner is a snowboard instructor. She'd taken up snowboarding. They decided to stay over the summer. Then they got stuck there for COVID. And she wrote this fantastic story about how the Japanese government had really looked after them Mm -hmm. um, as Westerners stuck in Japan. And the the financial support they got from the government, the support they got from from Nisiko, the snow that they got to ski. It was a really, really interesting piece that she wrote. And I thought, gosh, that would have probably been a really great place to be stuck for COVID. That's right. (laughs) Oh, very torturous watching all the social media of people stuck over there. Yeah. Yeah. All that powder with all those, without all the Australians would have been amazing. (laughs) I know that's what makes them survive. But, yeah. So... 
tell us a little bit about, um, so you decided to get into the snow, in, you were in the snow industry, you, you, you wrote it. Why did you decide to live in America? Oh, okay. So I guess I've been a ski journalist for about 10 years with Fairfax. So I had this column yep. in Fairfax for 10 years and I was writing for all other newspapers and publications and, and series producing for some TV stuff as well. And I had accreditation for Sochi, not to compete, <laughs> but to, to go as a, uh, as a press journalist. But my mother fell sick and she got really, she fell sick with bladder cancer. So I had to pull out and I reported on the Sochi Olympics from my office in Avalon. And which was basically my background in Avalon. And I found that I was able to report and break news, you know, Winter Olympic news from my office while watching it on TV quicker and faster than I could have if I was actually there on the ground. So at that point, I was reporting daily on just a little WordPress blog I had called missnowatall.wordpress.com. And then I realized actually, there probably is a business. There's probably enough Australians that ski and snowboard for to actually be a business and be a viable business and a commercial business. I'm going to um, venture out and do it myself. Mm-hmm. So I started doing that and then my mother died of cancer and I had mm-hmm. all of these. It was one of those years where if my mother had got cancer 10 years prior, I, I would have probably run in the opposite direction. But when they told me that she had cancer, it was to quote Brene Brown and Michelle Obama and anybody else that's seriously woke in the USA. It was my turn to lean in and I chose to. So I went on the cancer journey with my mother and it was the best of times and the worst of times. And after she died, I I went on a trip actually with Mary Lou Alvarez. We went on a trip. We went skiing in Telluride. We went skiing in Aspen. And then I think I went on to Vail without her. And it was an amazing, it was just a really great, fun, fun ski trip. And I kept seeing these signs from the other side, or so I kept telling myself. And the sign, my mother's name was Joy. So I kept saying Joy every, I mean, it might've been Christmas and it could have been Joy and all the lights and the windows, but you know, <laughs> I kept saying Joy everywhere. And I went into this pub one night and I wasn't supposed to be in this pub and and I got to this bar and it was the wrong bar and there was a guy standing at the bar and when he turned around, he had a T-shirt on and it said, under the spell of Joy. And I looked at him and I went, where did you get that shirt? He said, there's only two of these shirts in the world. My, this is the name of my friend's band. I have the shirt and he has the shirt. I said, what are you doing here? He goes, I don't know. This isn't the bar I'm supposed to be in. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's a sign. That's a sign. It's a sign. And so when I got back to back home to Sydney, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I'd started this, well, it started as a blog. Now it's a fully-fledged publishing site. But, yeah. you know, it's a fully-fledged multimedia platform. But I had this blog going and I was sitting at a traffic lights and the and the rain, it was raining and I was at the traffic lights in Chatswood on my way to Paddington to do a one-day autumn equinox yoga <laughs> retreat, leaving Avalon where every second door is a yoga room from some middle-aged woman who's got divorced and done 200 hours of teacher training. And I'm like, no, no, I'm leaving the yoga mecca of Avalon and going to Paddington for a day. So there am I. I'm sitting at the traffic lights, realizing I am nothing more than a driving cliche. And there is, and it's raining. And Radio Rudd, Follow the Sun, comes on the radio. And love that song. Follow, follow the sun, which way the wind blows when this day is done. That was, was the song of my mother's death, the year of my mother's death. And on my mother's deathbed, she said to me, 
look for me on the wind, Rachel. And so when I hear which way the wind blows, I look up and it's, and it's raining on my car and I look up and there's a car in front of me. And I've got a photo of this car and the rego plate. And the rego plate says COL70V. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to Colorado on the I-70 to Vail. Oh and so God. I get to Paddington. I do the one day, I do this one day yoga thing. I do some, I don't know, a downward dog and some scriptive writing. And I get home and I book a one-way flight to Colorado <laughs> and I start selling every single thing I own, everything I own, everything, mm-hmm. everything. Out the door, three months of just selling everything, everything, until I've got two suitcases. And in the middle of this, a friend of mine says to me, Rach, you've got to go have a massage with this woman in Warunga. And I'm like, Warunga? Why am I going to Warunga for a massage? She's like, it's only $40. I said, okay. And she goes, and also she'll tell you things that she's not supposed to know. So I go and I have this massage with this woman. I just give her my first name, not my last name. I um, don't give her my phone number. I show up. She does the massage, does little Reiki stuff at the end. And then she puts her hand on my arm and she says, there's a man here. He keeps touching his neck. His name starts with M. It's Matthew or Michael. No, I think it's Michael. He hung himself. Yeah, yeah, wants you to know he's really happy where he is. And one of my dearest friends had died just like that four months prior, and his name was Michael. And I was like, oh, my God. And then she goes, they're all holding up skis. Are you a ski instructor? <laughs> like, who are they? And, no, oh, I'm not a ski instructor. Right? <laughs> and then I didn't tell her I was a ski journalist, but I said, I'm not a ski instructor. And then she's like, hmm, your grandfather's here with his best mate, Jack. I'm like, I don't think my father, grandfather has a best mate, Jack. I asked my dad later. And he goes, yeah, yeah, his best mate was John, but everyone called him Jack. Oh, God. Like, oh, my God, right? I know, goosebumps. Yeah. Anyway, like I had a conversation with a friend of mine who is who spent, uh, well, I, I don't need to share his life story, but he was like, don't believe any of these things, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, you know, this is a little bit, I don't know. No. I mean, it's, I don't know. So then she goes, you're going to the south of France. And I said, no, I'm not going to south of France. Because you are. I'm like, no. Meanwhile, you're just going a bit more on my neck, thanks. Um, yeah, exactly. I'm, like, I'm actually going to Colorado. I didn't say that. She goes, you're going to the south of France. There's going to be a man with two children. I don't know what he's about. I don't know if he's in the south of France or where he is, but that's what's happening. So off I go. I sold everything. I've got two suitcases and I move to Colorado and I decide I'm going to write a book called Kiss Me Like a Cowboy Searching for Joy in Colorado because my mum's name is Joy. I Good. get to Colorado. And I stop and I go, okay, now what? <laughs> Where are the cowboys? Where are the cowboys? What, what happens now? What do I write now? What do I do? So I'm in Aspen for three months. I end up in Telluride for six months. I then go to Denver for a month. And then I go over to Chamonix to do a writer's retreat. And then I don't like the writer's retreat very much, so I find another place to go, a writer's residency, down in a place called Long Dock. And this guy looks at me and goes, you know you're going to the south of France. I said, no, I'm not going to Languedoc. He goes, yes, that's the south of France. I said, no, south of France is Nice, Antibes, Cannes, right? <laughs> He's like, no, the south of France is like the whole south of France. And when you go to Languedoc, they talk about being in the south of France. So she was right. Did anything oh, happen? Yeah. Did I meet a man with two children? No. Oh, <laughs> not yet. Oh, can I have her number? She, I, that'd be really good to get some insight. 
I know she's pretty good, isn't she? I mean, there was one guy there, but he was German and wore socks with sandals and was an academic with really thick glasses and so not me. But then I'm wearing a gingham shirt that's not me either. <laughs> so you never know. Never say never. And he kept telling me how beautiful I was, but then I caught him telling everybody how beautiful they were. Seriously, he was the loveliest man on the entire planet and he just made every woman there just feel fantastic. He was just, and his name was Gunter and he was freaking awesome. I love him to death. But oh, no, because his name was Gunter. Well, anyway, I ended up in, to answer your question, it was a long-winded answer, I know, I ended up in Utah in Park City after France. Yeah. And wow. then I was in Utah for three, four years, loved it, thought it was awesome. Park City, 30 minutes from Salt Lake City, brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. That's a big round the world sort of, you know, yeah. So I, I want to ask you uh, about, you wrote your book about anorexia. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I've got two friends at the moment that have got girls struggling with anorexia and one was actually telling me the other night that at the moment it is just there's not enough services in Australia. It is an absolute epidemic. It always been, has been quite bad, a silent epidemic, but it is, you know, there's all this money being thrown at the moment, all these things in Australia and it's severely underfunded and, yeah, what's your, you came, popped out the other end? Do you ever pop out? When you, were you on TV when you wrote this book or before it? Uh, both. So we did a documentary. My book is called Good Girls Do Swallow and it was about if you want to live your life free of disordered eating, you need to learn to swallow, keep your food down, not vomit it up. Obviously, the title was a double entendre to try to get more sales and it worked. Clever. It yes. ended up in the Catholic school, sadly, which is probably where it was needed. And... We did a documentary on that, which was sold to 22 countries around the world. And, you know, it was an important topic then. It's just as important topic now, if not more, because of social media, which I think is just just feeds orthorexia and anorexia and bulimorexia and binge eating disorder. It just feeds really bad body image and constant comparisons and filters. And I just really feel for anyone that has a daughter in this era because of this constant need to to look at yourself with a selfie and to edit the image, your image, and how you want others to perceive you. So I think when you define yourself by your externals, it's very hard to actually be solid and grounded in this world if your externals are taken away. So let's say you define yourself by being a size 8 and you end up with Ross River fever or some illness that means you can't exercise you, your glands blow up, whatever, and you end up a size 14 to 16, which is to me is still quite sexy. Yeah. If you define yourself as being a size 8 because you only define yourself by social media and the Kardashians, mm. then what have you got left? There's nothing of you. So young girls are not taught conflict resolution. They're not, and I know that seems quite separate to eating disorders, but they're not. We're, we're taught that we must always be best friends forever. When some friends will come and go, we're not taught how to speak openly about how we feel about um, our friendships falling apart or about something that a friend did that we didn't like. So we eat that or we starve that or we go to the gym. And this this idea that the best body is, you know, a buxom buttocks with powerlifting legs at the moment is just forever changing and how do you ever keep up? In terms of resources for young girls, Body Matters is really good, but they've had to open up a second a second clinic. There are rehab clinics. There's not enough of them. 
With, no, I really don't have the answer. I don't think anyone has the answer. Yeah. It doesn't, and it's so complex because it's not just the magazines and the and and how you see yourself and the representation. Um, and we know that representation matters. We know that if girls see more of themselves surfing, if they see more of themselves skiing, that they will partake in that sport more. We know that if Indigenous people see more of themselves on stage, they see more of of, the, of themselves as authors, then they're going to partake more in in those particular arts. We know that disabled people, and I hate that term disabled, but people that are in wheelchairs see more of themselves in sit skis. They're going to want to partake more. Yeah. Um, but it's how you see young girls. And at the moment we're not seeing young girls as strong and exciting. We're just seeing many of those young girls are just seeing themselves as obje- objects. Be objects but, but be but be no, but there is, there is hope because... Yeah. I did an interview series with a bunch of school captains last year from different schools across Sydney, and it was for um, Nicholas Fane's photography in Pimble, and he was shooting them all, and I was doing the interviews. And these girls, they totally freaking rocked it. They were feminists. They got, they understood consent. They freaking knew how to say no. They they were so much wiser than I ever was at their age. And I thought I was like the wisest thing in the planet. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They were, they were just, they just gave me so much hope. Yeah. Yeah. I have a 16 and 14 year old girl, so I'm right amongst it, but they are amazing that they're, they're in sport, you know, and they're, which kind of keeps them busy and doesn't keep them looking on the, on their phone and they're in, they're, they're in different sports, you know, so they're not just focused on their own body shape in that sport. They're in lots of different sports, which body shapes have to be different for all sports, you know, and some coaches are like, Oh my God, you can't play that sport because it's bad for your body for this sport. And I'm like, you know what girls play the sport that you want and that you love, you know? Yeah. And it's funny. um, I mean, obviously our loving the snow life is small and we're growing it, but we Tanil and I try and we're so conscious having three daughters between the two of us of of these issues and even on the weekend I did a post about me not drinking for the last four months and I texted Tanil and I'm like is that all right because I just basically gone blah and she's like yep yep you know and it's like we're just and I think I said trying to trying to stay a positive influence on people you know because we're just so conscious of these things it's all around us and we're just trying to go yeah here we are with no makeup having fun skiing having the time of our life and not drinking and you know whatever it's I didn't get on that bandwagon sorry no. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no I love it but do you think yeah like, within the snow industry like you've been in it you've been at the top you've yeah. done the athletes you've seen that is there a good role model within the industry i think michaela is probably up there or you Laura know bright is awesome as well yeah, sure bright yeah yeah depends what you're looking for in terms of role models yeah um, i mean Tora bright's great because she's all about youth and the young girls and getting them out there steph gilmore's the same yeah, i think yeah. lindsey vaughn i wasn't a huge fan of lindsey vaughn for a while but she's talked a lot recently about cellulite and body image and mm-hmm. and size i think she's pretty amazing for that I think any any athlete that's willing to come out and talk about their own body image issues is phenomenal and there's plenty of them out there. What's interesting though is is in this particular culture where you just said before, Emma, where you said to to Neil, oh, is it okay if I post this? I feel that through COVID in particular, I feel that when COVID came in, Australia was already in trauma from the bushfires. So you now had Australians in trauma on top of trauma. 
And I feel that the Karens, and I hate saying Karen because I've got a lot of friends with the Karens, but you know, apparently I'm a Karen sometimes. People, are you? Okay. Well, those <laughs> people that like to jump on and tell you what's right and what's wrong, what's okay and what's not okay, that while we feel that we have this ability to express more about how we feel about things and be more honest and more real, and that's what people connect with. So, Emma, you talking about, well, you know, I stopped drinking for four months and I feel much better for it. And, you know, when I was drinking, I was X, Y, and Z. That makes you real and authentic, but it also puts you open to everyone that wants to freaking have a go at you. Mm -hmm. And somebody asked me the other day, oh, you used to write a lot of opinion pieces. And I said, yeah, I did, didn't I? And then they're like, what happened? I said, well, COVID hit. And I was so petrified, so petrified throughout COVID while you know, four months of, of absolutely no revenue whatsoever, every single one of my clients cancelling within 72 hours mm-hmm. and me literally being the comms for the entire Australian ski industry because they weren't communicating anything you to were. people. You really were. And I was literally like, okay, this is what's going on. This is what we think is what's going on. This is what we know is what's going on. While every every other brand decided, I think unwisely, that silence was the best form of communication, which I do not adhere to yeah. in my shape or form. I'm like, okay, well, I disagree. We're yeah. going to be as transparent as we can. Yep. I never wrote a single word about what I actually felt or believed or what my opinion was because I was so petrified because I was in trauma because I'd lost all of my clients yeah. after the bushfires and we'd done the bushfire auction and then we'd come straight into this and I lost all my clients in 72 hours. I was so petrified of saying the wrong thing and that then taking my whole site down, my whole digital down, my whole Facebook down through people, through just being misinterpreted. Yeah, yeah. It's really for people now. Well, I I mean, the thing is it's putting yourself in a space of this is just the way it is. This is how we have to be. This is how we have to be for the next generation. This is how we have to be for, I've certainly said to to Neil and our other friends with teenage daughters, I'm conscious of uh, where we all get together and I'm drinking around your daughters and they are watching me. Uh, So, you know, that kind of thing. I'm conscious of how I speak to myself around your daughters and all that kind of stuff. So it's unequivocally we have got ourselves there, whether we're going to be attacked or not. Look, we're tiny. We're tiny, but we love to grow. But, you know, it's about going, this is how we have to go forward. We have no choice. With children and with young girls, I often, I used to do a lot of keynote speeches around body image and eating disorders and female competition because my second book was about how girls compete and how it's different to the way boys do and how to move it and change it from destructive to constructive. Don't get rid of it, just how how to shift it. And I used to say to people, Challenge yourself when you, because what you just said really connected in that terms of I listen to what I say around my girls and around Tanel's girls, and grandmothers do this a lot. Whereas when you comment on a on a young girl, what you're actually saying. So you know people that will put up photos of their daughters and people go, oh your daughter's so pretty, it's so beautiful, oh, she's so gorgeous, and you're like, can you not comment on how she looks? Yeah. Or you know people would go, and and then you, when you start to to stop yourself you start realizing oh my god what what can I say this is all I've ever done before oh don't you look gorgeous in your little chill dress you know and then instead of oh gosh you look so strong today what what's your favorite sport or yeah you've been reading any books lately or anything like that and yeah I think that's I think and and when you start to do that for a day you really notice how often you actually say stuff that 
Well, I, I mean, I think I started out as being conscious of swearing. Oh, right. <laughs> that was started and it was like, okay, and yeah. somebody had me a snap. So, and it's like, you know, how do we want our children to be? And I have to model it, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. Harry, that's really that's amazing <laughs> that you came to, came to that. And that, <laughs> will you drink again? Will you ever drink again? Me? Oh, yeah, I will. I will. I just needed to kind of press the reset button on after these lockdowns and stuff it just got all very boring that you know it's like there's more to life than drinking well there's alcohol and skiing go together far too much well and it mm. doesn't need to be here I am no, it doesn't need to be. that I want everyone to know that that it doesn't have to it doesn't it's have to people be plan their holidays where the party is at though if you look at all a lot of European resorts they base themselves on the party atmosphere like inch yeah. you know like yeah. whereas yeah that's kind of where it's I'm going to go there or I'm going to, or Whistler. Like how many people, how many kids now go and get their Canadian, you know, two-year visa and they go, right, head straight to Whistler. And you're like, oh, don't. There are so many amazing other places within. But Whistler is an entry point. Yeah. It's an entry point again. It start with the big, like I only went to the big resorts to start because they're the only ones I knew. And then I started going, oh, my God, I want to go to Whitefish. Oh, my God, you know, I want to go to Grand Targhee. Oh, can we go to Soldier Mountain? And it's only once you start to love, it's like, you know, starting with, with cask wine. I shouldn't, I shouldn't do alcohol, should I? (laughs) Again, again, I'm still a drinker. Very rightfully said during COVID and she messaged me about the, about the show us to girls group, which, you know, came about because we just, because the the resorts weren't showing enough women. And she messaged me and she said, I've really noticed how much people talk about alcohol in your group during COVID. And that can be really triggering for people. And I was like, oh, how do I handle that? Like, what do I say about that? Because there is. A lot of people put up photos of themselves having wine. And I'm like, well, you do what you've got to do to get through. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean that you're that you're yay or nay, is it? It's like, well, I'll support, oh, no. support, I support. Think we're adults. I think where I got to with it all was that I don't want to ever, I don't think any of us should ever judge other people for drinking. Yeah. It's just, yeah. it's really nice that when I was, 18 or however old I was, I guess I didn't know there was an option to not drink, you know. (laughs) like It was was never an option, right? Yeah. The culture. And what I notice now about the younger generation is there's most certainly an option if you want to drink or not drink or just, you know, when I go to the yoga studio and they're all 18 (laughs) to 25 and fabulous, I sit there in awe thinking, had I known that I could be a non-drinking 18 to 25-year-old yoga person, I, that have been great? I probably would have been, but I was at the pub matching one for one with the blokes, you know. But there are all these um, like new bars that are opening that are non-alcoholic bars. Have you seen that? Yeah, no, yeah a lot. Yeah, yeah there's a, a new bar in Sydney somewhere. It was I saw a piece on it yesterday which is they want to be the kings and queens of, of non-alcoholic drinking. Oh, cool. And it looks like a cocktail bar and it sells cocktails that just don't have alcohol in them. That's amazing. See, it's options for people. It's horses for courses instead of saying everybody has to do the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. This, well, getting back to the ski industry, like I think now they're actually starting to open their eyes up to, well, a long time ago they started doing women's skis, you know, and then they do women's clothing now and they do women's boots when I was back in the day in the 90s there was no option it was like you just get that you get the men's ski you get the men boot you get the men goggles 
So it's really nice that there's options out there now for women. And you know, we're we're gonna we're gonna do a course. We're, we're gonna do a mountain retreat for women. But I think also men should have an option too. You know, like not to discourage that too much. But why? Yeah, I know they have had that option. It's for that whole. Time. I guess it's that whole thing of like. Well, I mean, yeah, as Tanil said, we're running a three-day, three-night mountain retreat for women, but I guess it's that thing of like it's the thing in the media in the last couple of months of consent where they're getting their, the boys, I've got two sons, getting the boys to stand up in assembly, oh, saying sorry great. for existing. It's like let's just, it's like a yacht, like let's, we've got to go that way and that way, but let's just kind of try and stay in the middle, like correct but not overcorrect and you know that kind of thing (laughs) yeah i know it's really interesting because the ski industry is male dominated like without a doubt without a doubt Mm -hmm. like it's been that way since day one like you know and it's nice to see there is a ceo at hotham now that's a female belinda she's been there for quite a while yeah exactly and also the the ski school director at perisher is a female as well so there is spurts spurts of women (laughs) in the industry (laughs) To use the word, God. But I wish, I think my girls coming through, there will be more. I I see that a lot of the courses coming through for the races now are got females there as well, you know, or not even just racing because that's always been female, but now freestyle skiing, they're allowing for girls to go into freestyle clubs as well. It wasn't looked upon too kindly even five. Traditionally, we've won more. Exactly. Medals and Olympic medals. From our female athletes. Our females. I know. And it's really struggling to see in Australia that we don't have such a female at a top level, you know, in our coaching or in our institutes. I'm sure they will one day. At least Alyssa Camplin is, I guess, up there. Yeah, but she's Um, not coaching. She's just on the board. Yeah, she's she's on the board. Like on a board. So as a tokenism, tokenism on board nothing. And I'm not saying that Alyssa's a tokenism, but there is there is, you know, tokenism, there's no room for tokenism. Yeah, yeah, I want action. That's what I want. I want some action. Yeah, and I want. Yeah. I, I want action. I. I mean, I remember. Gosh, oh, I actually can't say it's a terrible story, but I actually can't repeat it. Well, yeah. you know, even I, this is an example as the reason why Tanil and I are running this retreat is mm. because we even our little one liner was "It's your turn." Is because it's always the bloke's turn and it's now the female's turn, and there's got to be. We thought surely there's got to be lots of women out there would would just. It's they want to come down for three days. But we, I mean, we haven't filled the, all the spots and we're going, why? Why, you know? Oh, well, it's probably just promotion, that's all. Just got to get it out there, really, because, because I, I mean, I've done so many women's camps and, and I used to laugh and go, I don't need to, I don't want to do a women's camp. And I used to just want to ski with the blokes all the time because I thought they were the better skiers. But in actual fact, they're the faster skiers. That's all it is. They've got more strength and grunt and muscle going down that mountain and once I started doing some women's camps and some women's weeks I started to realize how technique obsessed we are and how we learn so differently and how it's not a bunch of testosterone at the top egging each other on it's a bunch of supportive women at the bottom going come to me baby come to me you know and it's awesome and I used to be very anti all women stuff. And now I'm like, I say to people all the time, you will literally go up two levels as a female if you go and do a women's camp. You will lit that's, that's what will happen. The support, the encouragement is just fantastic. And I, I've done them in Hotham, I've done them in Falls, I've done them in Verbier, I've done them in the States. 
God, I've done them every. And we ran a women's heli ski day two years ago in New Zealand for this very reason because so many women went, I'm not good enough to heli ski. I'm like, yes, you are. You're 100% good enough to heli ski. So we set up a heli ski day in New Zealand, booked out, and the girls had the best time ever. It's, oh, that belief, you know, like women that they can't get out there, they don't believe they're good enough to go on heli skiing. Why did they even get that belief? It's it's, it's also conditioning in your own life as well. So, and it depends where you're at in your life. I mean, I, and it depends what's going you know, on any given day. I can think I'm the worst skier in the entire planet. And other times I can think I'm so freaking good. I think I can ski with the Prime Minister of New Zealand and then just break the city. I can't, right? And, and then after I had a I had a really traumatic incident at Park City Mountain where ski instructor I was skiing with, he'd been a ski instructor for 41 years. He and I was on a three-day camp with him and one other bloke. It was him, a bloke, and I. Really nice guy that, that I was with. He was 70, I think. And we were doing, it was December, so we were just doing moguls on McConkeys over and over again because oh. there wasn't a lot of snow. So it was just like, oh, my God, kill my knees. Anyway, he fell on a blue-green, more green run than anything, in front of us and snapped his neck at C1 and he died in front of us. And we had to try to save him. And it was an exceptionally traumatic experience and I just stood there as a classic female afterwards going there and the ski school guys coming up just going, well, okay, so tomorrow you'll be coming back to do, we'll get you. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? We're doing day three, what? And I look at the older guy who's 70, I look at him and I go, we're going to do that? He goes, yeah, I go, yeah, yeah, we're going to do that. Because I just gave up, I just gave over. To a male. To to an older man. An older male, yeah, sorry. But what I realised was that that trauma alone set my skiing back at least one level because after that I found it really hard to ski because if a man who is a top-level ski instructor who's brilliant, who's been skiing for 40 years, can die in front of me on a green run, mm. what hope do I have in hell? No. Well, but on the opposite as well, look at Stephen Bradbury. <laughs> he's not a but I know what you mean yeah yeah it was hard like I found I was I froze halfway down a mountain about two months after that for no other reason than somebody just called out cliff and I oh. heard the word cliff and because I, I would constantly look for the exit signs wherever I was and I was I had a tail guide with me thank god because I heard this guy go cliff and I went oh my god there's a cliff oh my god and I froze and, of course, the cliff is like, I don't know, 50 metres away. It's nowhere near me. And but, the tail guide behind me, I, and he knew I had this trauma, and I just went, I can't do it, I can't ski down. And he goes, Rachel, it's really simple. You just like four turns and then you get through the woods and then down there and there's the chopper. And I'm like, no, I can't do it. And I go down on my bottom and he looks at me and he's like, if that's what you have to do, it's what you have to do. Mm-hmm. So I went down on my ass those three turns until I got into the woods. And yeah, it, oh, my it, God, it, what has happened to me? Skiing can do that. It can. Well, you saw a death. That's what oh, happened. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, getting back to when I first met you again on an, well, I didn't meet you. I saw you on stage and kind of, to, yeah, with Anna and Nat Seagal when they were doing Finding the Line. That's yep. very, I think that, that movie was almost about a lot of their fears and getting over that, just kind of like what you were talking about now. They were amazing. That movie, I wanted to get that movie into schools for them. The yeah. pushback from schools that I got to try and get that movie into to just schools 
it was just oh, it was horrendous. But but that movie, not even, let's move on from that. Let's talk about that movie that you were there and you were interviewing the girls on finding. Well, I worked with them from the beginning of that, from their first thoughts about that movie. Did you really? Oh, yes, I consulted to them on a number of elements around that film for many, 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 many months, and yeah. come up with locations and various things, and talked about the narrative arc of that film, and. You know, I've been big supporters of Anna and Nat for a long time. Anna actually stayed with me in Sydney whenever she was in Sydney training for the Olympic, dryland training for the Olympics. Yeah, wow. So she would she stay. I had a room that I gave her in Avalon. And I feel that the editor in Melbourne that edited that movie did such a brilliant job in terms of a narrative arc and it is such an important topic and that movie isn't about skiing. No. It's a movie about fear and how the two girls overcome fear in very, very different ways. And it could be anything. It just skiing is the is the conduit that they presented in. Yeah. And I'm surprised. I Like it would have been great to get it all across schools. That would have been awesome to know. I think that would have been fantastic. I do. That is one of my favourite ski films, that and Will to Fly. And I like it because they have a story that skiing delivers as opposed to just being ski porn. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. It was, yeah, and they just delivered it so beautifully, like from the heart. Well, the editor obviously did did an amazing job. I'm a filmer. I mean, it's, it takes a whole team to get a film like that up and running. Yeah. Those girls came up with the concept. They knew what they wanted. They had that fantastic angle that they were sisters. Yes. And, you know, and they are very different. When you ski with them, the two of them are very different the way they approach mountain, very different, yeah. and very different the way they approach life when you hang out with them. And... You know, Anna is one of the most focused individuals I've ever met in my life. But now that she's older and she's now living in Canada, she shifted that focus from skiing into climbing and backcountry. And she's just a joy to behold because I look at her and think, I'll never be you. I wish I could be. I wish I had that dedication. I guess in a way we all do it different things. And Nat, Nat has now really grown into into herself as a woman and it's just you know they're, they're great people really yeah. great people. yeah living in Revelstoke and loving life <laughs> I mean it's a nice privileged life that they both live that's for sure because you know we can't all just live as ski bums they find a way they certainly find a way that's true well that's true though if you do want to have it and you have got a passion for the mountains you do find a way to live there don't you whether you're working five jobs yep. you know doing yep from whatever it is you're doing because yep. a lot of people in the mountains have five jobs. <laughs> That's your or, passion, absolutely, yeah. Totally. Yeah, or you're a ski snow journalist like you. Like you uh, are pretty uh, amazing, though. You get a lot of free uh, stuff, which a lot of people out there would be like. I think there's no such thing as a free lunch. Yes, <laughs> so true. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Now, I'm fully aware of how exceptionally privileged I am to be able to ski where I want I hate that thing of going, but I worked really hard to get there because privilege got me there in the first place because I know a lot of other people who work really hard and never get to go anywhere. So well, it, it, it's like a, you know, the perfect coming together of things, isn't it? Because, I mean, yeah, we can all, we all see people that are working bloody hard and never seem to crack it. And then there's the ones who have got the Midas touch. So it's sort of like a right, you know, right place, right time, working hard, a combination of lots of things. You know, perception and reality is quite different though. I mean, I almost lost my business last year. So, and I could very easily almost lose my business again. 96% of my revenue relies on the international border being open. So, 
that's really hard. And most people didn't realise that last year while we were pumping out information about what was going to happen in Australia over and over and over and pumping out so much stuff and doing those ISO videos of all the people around the world skiing in their own lounge rooms and doing all of that stuff and keeping the vibe alive. That was all done on zero revenue, absolute zero revenue. And, you know, there were times that I just thought if it wasn't for JobKeeper, I wouldn't have been able to keep that business going until my clients came back. I've got clients that have come back now, thank God, but not all of them yet because they need the international borders open. Yeah, they do. They, you will get them back though. Like are you the snow travel show? Are you going are you promoting it that this year this year in May or no, um, I don't work at the Snow Travel Expo. No, um, no, but No, I mean I know Phil very well, obviously. Yeah. And yeah, they spend a little bit of money with us every year to promote it. I won't be going this year as much as I'd like to. I have a very ill father. So oh, yeah, of course, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah, it's all good. Yeah. yeah, it's, yeah. I think, I think one of the things of your privileged life, though, just um, not saying that it, well, yeah, it is. It's amazing. I'd love it. You definitely give back, though, like with your snow aid. That was huge. Like to source $300,000 or plus <laughs> in prizes yeah. in a short amount of time, you get, you certainly are giving back what you're receiving, which is pretty amazing. Well, so, I do think that, I was talking about this yesterday actually, I do think it's really important that you, if you have the privilege of having a voice, that you use it. I would like to use my voice more for Indigenous issues within the ski industry of Australia and the mountains of Australia. Trying to decide how I'm going to do that and who I'm going to do that with will be the next 12-month project for me. But I do think that, I mean, how can you not do something with the bushfires when it impacted our alpine region? But even when you do what I did with that, and I was very fortunate because I'd worked as a sponsorship manager and um, publicist with Cure Brain Cancer Foundation, raising, you know, millions of dollars every year in a ball. So I knew what it took to raise some stuff, but I honestly thought that we'd just probably get five pairs of skis or something. We could option that off. I had no idea how much the international world really felt for Australia and and we ended up with 120, 100, I just, I'm almost dying at the thought of it now, 120 items yeah. to auction. But even then, you know, some people would say, because there's always haters, there's always going to be haters. Some people would say, oh, this is ridiculous because all she's doing is promoting international resorts, not Australian. And I'm like, but the international resorts want to help because they love Australia. Mm-hmm. And this is about raising money. It's raising money for the bushfires and the trauma of this country. We also did something, I'll tell you who's been really good this year, Arcturix. The guys at Arcturix did that fantastic Victorian Alpine relief auction. Yep. And they came to us, we partnered with them on that, and they were just fantastic. They had the Australian ski industry specifically together to raise funds for Victorian tourism businesses and Alpine businesses that were decimated by not having a ski season last year. Like there was no ski season. Push by through summer and then no ski season. Oh, that's awful. But I think this yeah. thing about about giving back, I would just like to say that my father, who is currently very unwell, and by the time this goes to air may not be here, is a man who has always, always given back to his community and has done so much for industries that he's worked in and people that he's lived next to and he won, he, you know, he got gifted an order of Australia for it. And I do think that that's why I have always ended up working with so many charities. Yeah. I do is. think it's because of it's it's nurture, not nature. Yeah. 
And just on that note, I think the ski industry has so many capacities to contribute to the community, even with a disability, uh, what, what's it called? Winter? Blah, blah, blah. Disabled yeah. Women's Sports Disabled Australia, Sports Australia yeah. Yeah. and yeah. the Indigenous programs. Yeah. And who else have we interviewed, Tanil? Oh, just the, you know, POW. We picked yeah. uh, our wind. No, I don't do enough. I feel that we don't. I feel that Snow's Best hasn't been doing enough on the. There's um, so. Probably there's just been recovering itself from COVID. climate change element. I really feel that we haven't done enough on that yet. Yeah. We definitely would get into that. We, we had a great interview with um, POW, with the Australian. Yeah. Um, and then power, yeah. And also, I'll tell you who else is brilliant. Lucas Wilkinson, who's doing Keep It Cool with all of the planting of trees in Jindabyne and around the Snowy Mountain region. He's doing brilliant stuff. Keep It Cool, it's called. And I've noticed the young, like my 14-year-old, he actually put in money for, for that. And awesome. the young ones are really wanting to awesome. do something. And tree planting, that kind of stuff, so tangible. Oh. Totally tangible. People to want to do something. And it's just a matter of all of us in our capacities is yeah. highlighting all the ways we can help. Well, Lucas Wilkinson, he's he's amazing. He's doing, he's created Keep It Cool and he's doing partnerships with various people. I keep meaning to talk to him about doing something with us, which we will eventually get to. But you know, since COVID, it really is me and one person part time, and that's it. So you can only do yeah, something. well. Well, you definitely um, will come back because it's you're <laughs> wanted. I mean, I look to what like I run a ski tour company to Canada, and I look to you to go. Hold on, what's happening in, with the borders? What's happening? You know, which is so. But thank you for that because you did keep us hooked in the ski industry while everyone else was closed up. <laughs> we need it too and I do feel that you've got to give people a voice and you've got to give people community the ski industry is such sorry skiers and snowboarders around the world are a com- global community amongst themselves and then within each region they're a community and within each country they're a community and you can bond with someone in a second on a plane if you both ski you can yeah. bond with someone in a second in a cafe in the middle of the Cook Islands if you both ski and that's why those Facebook groups and the Facebook forums are so fantastic. Everybody's Facebook groups and Facebook forums because everybody wants to talk about it. Yeah, agreed. To finish up, we yeah. always ask, okay. what's your favourite ski resort? <laughs> I have to say a client, don't I? Hang on. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My God, how do I say a client without offending another client? No, I'm joking. Well, <laughs> My favourite ski resort is yep. whitefish. Oh, if I have to choose a resort, resort yep. as opposed to like something intrepid and backcountry, I would say whitefish because you ski around the corner and all of a sudden there's a giant multicolored statue of Jesus and I'm not religious and you're like, oh my God, where did you come from? And then you ski down to the bottom of the, and it's great tree skiing and that's my favorite thing in the entire planet is, is skiing tree skiing powder and it's beautiful powder tree skiing and whitefish and you get to the bottom and they have nachos the size of your head and they have but it's all gone now in fact I think they've actually torn it down they used to have these locker rooms and each person would go into a raffle to get a locker room for the season and then they could do up the real locker room however they wanted because there's like 10 locker rooms upstairs so people would have like giant coca-cola neon signs or three chesterfield lounges or (laughs) you know sparkly liberace meets elton john it was just fabulous (laughs) i loved it oh that sounds old school like skiing should be like that shouldn't it you know great great town great mountain 
Yeah, yeah. I have skied it once, but I haven't been there for a long time. So I'd like to go back and I do remember, yeah, the locker rooms. But thank you so much for your time today. It was amazing. Appreciate it. I I really enjoyed that. That was really fun. And and hey, we've got to promote your um, three-day retreat. Let's get that out into our Show Us to Girls group. Let's get some people that would be awesome. We'd love it too because it's it'll be fun. It'll be a great great time. And you know, it's all about promoting women in the sport and promoting getting making those two steps. There's instructions included, so they get better. In you know, <laughs> and they don't have anyone going yeah 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 or kids going yeah 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 at their feet. It's all about them. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. But yeah. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Loving the Snow Life with Emma and Tennille. If you've learned a handy tip or two, then happy days. To catch all our episodes, subscribe on iTunes. It's free. Head over to www.lovingthesnowlife.com.au for more info and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Loving the Snow Life. If you have any suggestions for topics or guests, then email us on our website. Thanks to everyone who leaves a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to share our episodes on your social media.